This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Malcolm Farnsworth. Malcolm is a political writer and publisher of AustralianPolitics.com. Malcolm joined me in the studio for an in-depth analysis of the 2019 federal election results. We also talked about Australian political history as well as the legacy of Prime Minister Bob Hawke. I'm very excited now to welcome into the studio Malcolm Farnsworth, who he writes uh, about politics at the moment. He's writing for Mianjin, but of course he's written in the past for a range of publications, for Schwartz Media, for ABC's The Drum, and he's also, most importantly, such a wonderful curator of historical content, and he has a wealth of knowledge given his um, previous career was as a teacher of history and politics. And he publishes some great websites, including australianpolitics.com. I highly recommend it. It has some amazing resources. It is really the place to go for Australian politics content over the whole history of Federation onwards in terms of Australian elections and leaders. And it's been such a a great resource for me uh, when I started out writing about federal politics in... The, gosh, 2010 election, I think it was, so many years ago now. And uh, that's how I found the wonderful Malcolm Farnsworth was on Twitter. So I welcome Malcolm now and say thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. And it's lovely to meet you in person and to have a proper conversation in person. It's much better than that uh, bizarre world online that yes. we, we inhabit far too much. We do, yeah. And it, it has changed over time too, hasn't it? Yes. Yes, Twitter was quite good fun 10 years ago. Mm. It's a, I find it difficult to uh, stay there now. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the time I'm simply bored with it. Yeah. You know, quite aside from the whole lot of arguments about it being toxic. Um, but anyway. Mm. Well, it's true. I think I was attracted to Twitter because it was a place that you could have robust debates with people about policy. Ironically, it's not like that anymore. And there was nuance, not always, but there was a lot of very earnestly passionate people who were very much interested in a contest of ideas. Mm. So it it seemed like it was in its very early stages a wonderful way to grow interest in politics. And that's still there if you can find that right sort of network and circle. Mm. Um, And a lot of the people I sort of developed an attachment to all those years ago, many of them are still there. So it's not entirely gone, but it has developed a, uh, you know... <laughs> a, a flavour now that uh, I find the unpalatable. Yes, it has been quite more um, black and white and quite polarising over some particularly mm. emotive issues that people often get excited by in federal politics. But let's start out with what is the most recent and important news. Uh, we have been witnessing an election campaign that seemed to go on forever because we've really seen it happening since Scott Morrison was elected as leader of the Liberal Party when Malcolm Turnbull, of course, was turfed out. Who? Yeah, exactly. Who? Where's he gone? He was over in New York. Yes, he's back. Yeah, he's back. He came back yesterday. (laughs) Interesting timing. And so we saw on Saturday night a result that not 
really many people were expecting at all. The Liberal Party wasn't expecting it, Labor wasn't expecting it, the pollsters weren't expecting it, uh, the bookies weren't expecting it. So it means that although it's not really a massive victory in the sense that the coalition may have only a one or two seat majority, we are kind of treating it with a lot more reverence because of the type of comeback the Liberals have made given all of their political infighting, aren't we? That, that, that is exactly right. Um, I was thinking just before back to the 1993 election um, and that's the crucial date because that was when Keating uh, knocked over John Hewson and it's 26 years on, we've had nine federal elections mm. and Labor has only won two of them. And it's only one one with a majority, Kevin Rudd yeah. in 2007. And then in uh, 2010, uh, Gillard, of course, lost the majority and had to do the deal with the independents. Um, so it's been a very dry run for a quarter of a century in many respects for, for Labor. And I think that makes this defeat uh, all the worse. And I was thinking of 1993 because, of course, that was when the Liberals lost their fifth election in a row. Mm. And there were many people and many of these very silly people in the media who were saying that the Liberal Party is finished, you know, what does it do now? It's going to have to change. Um, and uh, they were so desperate that they started looking to people like Bronwyn Bishop to <laughs> no, lead it. No, really? Um, <laughs> now, you know, where did all that go? At the very next, next election, in comes John Howard and he's there for 11 years. Mm. Uh, so it's easy to get excited about these things. Uh, you never quite know what the future uh, will bring and both Labor and Liberal are the established parties of government in our system. Uh, they are fairly resilient. They go through their ups and downs. They have their brawls, some of them massive and nasty, but they survive and they keep going. And uh, it's a mistake to just write them off, mm. just as it was a mistake to write off Scott Morrison. Yes, very <coughs> true. And so, that's okay. And when we're talking about uh, primary votes, we've seen both parties kind of decline in terms of their primary vote. And your website has um, many resources, and one of them is showing over the history of our election cycles where the Labor's and the Liberals' party vote have been at various points in time. And we've only really seen a very healthy Labor primary vote with the Kevin Rudd 07 big election campaign that did seem to capture people's imagination at the time, particularly younger people. Um, what are the other uh, primary votes or highly successful Labor leaders who seem to capture our imagination? Well, um, if you look at the current situation, mm. these figures are bouncing around a little bit as the votes continue to come in, but they won't change uh, dramatically. And you're quite right, the, the Coalition's primary vote has dropped by about 0.7 of 1%, and they're on 41.4. The Labor vote is down about 0.8 and is on about 33.8. Now, that takes the ALP back to where it was in 2013. It made up about 1% at the last election, but now it's slipped back again. Now, the whole sort of fragmentation of the party system and the preferences that are now needed, it's all very well, but if your primary vote is 33%, you are not going to win. Mm. Um, that 
seems fairly apparent. Um, so both major parties have gone down a little bit. The overall swing, as of this morning, I checked it just before I came in, the overall swing nationwide is 054 away from Labour towards the Coalition. Mm. So really, it's very similar to the last election. Um, now, just to sort of put a positive spin on it from the Labour side before I have to go do the rest of it, <laughs> the Labour Party has continued to win the working-class seats. Um, I think Peter Brent has pointed out on Twitter this morning that uh, in Western Sydney, the Labor uh, two-party vote in all those uh, traditional um, heartland seats is still 55%. What's happened is that a lot of them have had swings within them. So Chris Bowen, the Shadow Treasurer, for example, has had a 6% swing in his seat. He's still won it comfortably, mm. but he's down 6%. And that's a fairly common feature across um, Sydney, for example. Um, so it's not necessarily as bad as it looks. But on the other hand, in Queensland, the Labor Party's primary vote has fallen to 27.3%. It's hard to imagine. I mean, it's bad enough having a national vote of 33 where only one in three people you meet in the street are prepared to vote for you. In Queensland, it's one in four. Um, and that is pretty much unsustainable. Yeah. And point of interest, the best jurisdiction for Labor in this election was the Northern Territory, where they've actually got 43% of the vote, um, which is sort of odd given what we tend to think of the uh, of the Northern Territory. Um, but you're quite right. This is a disastrous result for the Labor Party. Uh, very few people saw this coming. Uh, I didn't really see it coming, even though I'd been given enough indications. Um, you know, a Labor person had said to me just the other week, you know, most people think this should have been wrapped up weeks ago and it isn't. Uh, and things like that mm. normally are warning signs. But the polls were so consistent over three years that it really, in the end, uh, took everybody in. Um, and... I wrote last week, for example, that I thought the Liberal campaign was running on empty, mere culpa, nonsense. <laughs> uh, I wrote that uh, the arithmetic seems too hard for the coalition. Well, no, they've handled the, the arithmetic very well. Um, and the disaster is that the Labor Party has, if you exclude the two seats it picked up because of redistributions, that's yep. Corangamite and Dunkley in Victoria, they were notionally Labor. Well, they did win them and they got extra swings and, you know, they've won them quite comfortably, but nobody's sort of counting them because of the redistribution. Mm. And therefore the seat of Gilmore in New South Wales is the only seat and that hardly comes as a surprise because the Liberals had a massive brawl. They pre-selected a candidate who they then dumped and then one another candidate became an independent and then they parachuted Warren Mundine in. Oh, yes. And the, uh, you know, the, the aggro in, in Gilmore has been quite something and it mm. was very hard to see them winning it. Um, and then aside from that, they've won nothing else. All this silly talk about all these seats um, has come to nothing. Yeah, blue and they've ended seats up losing, becoming marginal. Exactly. And, th and they, they've lost Braddon in Tasmania. Bass is probably going to go, although the postals that have come in this morning suggest it's still very close. So yeah. 
don't hold your breath on that one. Um, and then they've lost two seats, Herbert and Longman in um, in uh, Queensland, plus they've lost Lindsay in, uh, in New South Wales. Um, and... The other interesting statistic, and I think I'm the only person who ever does this, probably because everybody else thinks it doesn't matter, but um, of the 151 seats, 94 of them had a swing against the Labor Party on the primary vote. Now, that's 62% swung yeah. again. And then on the two-party vote, the final vote after preferences, 83 of them, just over half, had a swing against them. So what's happened in this election is it's sort of half the seats have swung to the Libs, half have swung to Labor, but the swings are very rarely big enough to change the result. And in that sense, it reminds me in a funny sort of way of what happened in New South Wales back at the end of March, that there were swings, but they weren't changing seats. Yeah. There were only two or three seats. And whereas 20 seats changed hands federally last time... Mm. Um, uh, this time it'll be six, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's a very close result, but success and failure is measured by more than just the statistics. This is now becoming a major existential moment for the ALP about, you know, how do you get around the climate change issue in Melbourne as compared to Brisbane or further north of mm. Brisbane? Um, and that also applies in in relation to a number of other issues. Um, and it is a bit of an identity crisis. Uh, you can see it in the way the, the right wing are now pushing someone like Jim Chalmers, who's only been in Parliament two terms, um, because they don't want Albanese, because he's yes. from the left... But they may not want him from the left because they think he's un, unsellable to the mm. electorate. Um, but all of those things that have been sublimated for some years are now back. And it's a, it's a difficult moment for the ALP and they need to get it right. They do. And um, really, if we're thinking about, like, leadership and the person who's selling Labor policies, I mean, Bill Shorten was not particularly likeable he did not have a great kind of charisma over through the television in person maybe he had a bit more person-to-person -person charisma um but he also had a lot of political baggage that he i have my handle on twitter is get shortened and it was created because it was all about cutting someone down to size you know, knifing them in leadership spills. And Bill Shorten was a very important player in two leadership spills at least, um, you know, which saw Rudd and Gillard lose their jobs. Mm. So, I mean, it, it's surprising mm. that they ended up in that leadership contest between Albanese and Shorten with Shorten, who felt like he had, and he said this to some people, he felt like he was meant to be Prime Minister and he thought that he would become Prime Minister of Australia for many years. So... Can you still use that argument against Anthony Albanese when, you know, many might argue he's slightly more likeable than Bill Shorten? Well, in Shorten's case, uh, he you've got to remember everything is factional in, in the ALP and Shorten was in the right and the right controls the caucus. It always controls the caucus. Yeah. Um, and so it was the caucus votes and the way they weighted that, that got him up, even though the party membership um, uh, voted for, uh, for Albanese. 
Um, and I don't quite know what's going to happen this time, but you can tell it's being, you know, it's being played out now because we're up to sort of three candidates and maybe even a fourth. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, that what, what, what you say is quite correct. I used to feel round about the 2010 period that Shorten and that group of mainly first-term MPs... Um, I can name them. But, yeah, Mark R. Bibbs, <laughs> happy to name him. Oh, yes, and, and people like Don Farrell, yeah. people like Feeney in, in Batman at the time, all of these new MPs who'd made their mark in state politics, um, you know, got elected in 07 and then knocked off a Prime Minister two and a half years later, and that's the original sin for the decade of chaos that's followed. Um, and... In some ways, I feel that all of those people disqualified themselves from being taken seriously back then. On the other hand, you can't doubt Shorten's skills. Um, I came to admire his persistence. I came to admire the way he was on, on, on top of things. I came to respect the way he'd managed the caucus um, and the shadow ministry. Um, and I thought, well, you know, maybe we make too much of the whole personality thing but I think in retrospect and I, I wouldn't have said this last week but I do now because we've got the data um, now you, you can say well there was a problem that people thought that he was untrustworthy you know there's a piece I wrote five six years ago online somewhere where I described him as a spiv and I think that is a view that was fairly widely held. Mm. But having said that, if, if, if yeah. I may, <laughs> um, it's also more fundamental than that, I think. These scare campaigns or the, the real and imagined campaigns against the franking credits policy, uh, against the... Uh, um, or sort of tax cuts and tax rates in general uh, against the Adani mine, all of these sorts of things, I think, sowed enough doubts in people's minds. You know, so the, the swings in Queensland, if you look at, say, a seat like Capricornia, 12% swing. You know, the, the, the Liberal there, Michelle Landry, she's the first Liberal in 60 years or more to not only be re-elected but to win a third term. Um, in New South Wales, Joel Fitzgibbon has had a 10% swing against him in Hunter. All of this is coal. All of this mm. is about jobs, you know, and this is the Labor Party's dilemma, um, that it has to find some way to resolve this. Here we are sitting in a studio in Brunswick. Uh, this is not, you know, the, the rest of the world. This is not even the world um, that I've driven in from this morning, the world of the eastern suburbs, mm. uh, where, again, there are seats where there are small swings against the Liberals, but there are other seats where there are swings to them. You know, seats where, uh, you know, the so-called hard right Michael Sukar can get easily re-elected. Um, a seat where the Liberals look as though they're probably going to win Chisholm. Um, and, you know, you have to th think, well, you know, it's more fundamental than 
just these personality factors. Mm. Well, to me, it wasn't necessarily personality, but as you say, trustworthiness Mm. and whether he could really separate himself from that history that is still not front of people's minds, but people still think about it and it's referred to by his, yes. you know, The apparatchik, the union brawler, yeah. all of that. And most of the negative attack um, angles that the Scott Morrison and the Liberals played were around, you know, you can't trust Bill. That was what mm. uh, Clive Palmer really was focusing on, particularly was around trust. And also the fact that they were saying it's the bill you can't afford. Mm. You know, there's all these like stealthy taxes that are going to take your money yes. in the night oh, yes. Yes. and death and we, taxes that don't even exist. Yes. And we know from past experience you know, Howard nearly lost because of the GST. Um, it's very difficult to sell that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and so maybe they just failed some basic lessons of politics. Yeah, politics 101. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's hard. It's, it is hard to sell tax changes when you've got more than one because mm. not everyone is really interested yes. in tax. They're just more yes. occupied with their own income tax and anything else that's yes. relevant to their themselves. Um, but there's also, I feel like perhaps earlier, and this is where I'd like your opinion given you've been observing politics over such a, a wide range of time, is that was it easier to prosecute um, more complex tax changes or things that had nuance because, as we know, Labor wasn't getting rid of negative gearing. They were altering it so mm. that you could only negatively gear new houses and they grandfathered it so yes. that anyone pre-existing can still negatively gear the property they're already there, doing. you cannot underestimate the fact that people don't know what the term grandfather means. Yes. I remember a time when I didn't know what it meant. Same. Because yeah. it was one of those bureaucratic <laughs> terms that I learnt you know, not that long ago. Yeah. Um, and that's p- partly where it's all gone wrong. There has been a scare campaign. Mm. I mean, there's no question of that. And this is chickens coming home to roost because Shorten tried the Medi scare campaign at the last election. And I found that disturbing at the time because it was pretty thinly based, Mm. very thinly based. And Morrison clearly decided we're not going to be caught, we're going to return fire and we're going to return fire with cannons. And that's what they did. Um, So put all those things together, it's worked. Was it easier once before? I think the people in the business would say, yes, it was. Um... It's easy to overestimate that. Um, I mean, I'm someone who was at school when Whitlam was trying to introduce universal health insurance. And, you know, I was pushing 50 before you could even begin to think that it was entrenched. Um, it was an issue that had to be relitigated election after election for the best part of 30 years. Um, I remember the Hawke and Keating years in the 80s. Yes, there was some bipartisan agreement on certain things, but anyone who thinks that that was the dominant attitude at the time is kidding themselves. I remember the campaigns about, um, you know, old ladies keeping their their jewellery under the bed because uh, who would have been... um, uh, 
I forgot who the Labour leader was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, because because Hawke was coming after it. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, so it, it was still a sort of a nasty time, but it was a different time. Um, you know, some people will tell you that when it came to an opinion poll, uh, and I've heard various Hawke ministers uh, say this that. A poll was very useful to find out what people were thinking, but it didn't mean you then adjusted what you were doing. It meant that you took into account what you needed to persuade people of. Mm. Um, I think there's some truth in that. Uh, politics now is very, uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, here's some money for a hospital here, here's a road here, you know, um, and... It sort of lacks an overarching sort of story to tie it all together and sell it. And even though we were encouraged by the sort of media we consume to believe that Morrison is this, uh, you know, bogan advertising man, you know, with his uh, baseball cap on, um, spouting empty slogans. Now, that may all be true, but at another level... He was also just pushing a couple of fairly straightforward messages and they worked, you know. It's, it's like last year in the state election here in Victoria. I was struck and, and when I started talking to people I realised they were experiencing it too. But what most people were sort of saying was, oh, well, Andrews, they've got a lot done. Look at all those level crossings, look at these roads, look at these, you know, this, that and the other. Um, and they were rewarded for sticking to, you know, the meat and potatoes, mm. the bread and butter, if you like, of, of, of politics. Um, you know, and you have to find a way to do that federally as well, I think. Um, but, you know, historically, I mean, you can go back before Whitlam, it's not always easy it's never easy never mm. easy um you know the fights are bitter if, if, if you look at the disputes over what to do about the depression you know i mean they split the labor party three ways you know their leader became leader of the other side you know i mean things that we would find almost impossible to imagine now um you know the conscription debates in world war one the most sort of bitter time in our history in many respects um you know bank nationalization in the 1940s um it's never easy and so maybe it's something to do with the type of person who is in politics now mm. I'm, I'm not in that camp that says that you know it's all worse than it used to be because i can remember when people used to say that about the lot that went before you know they always say it that it's the sort of country we are you know, we have a grizzle, you know, oh, you know, not as good as Howard. And then when it was Howard, oh, not as good as Hawke, oh, not as good as Menzies, and, you know, and all this <laughs> sort of stuff. Um, it, it was ever thus. Um, but in a way, maybe the narrowing of the base of the uh, background of MPs does have something to do with it now. I also am interested in your thoughts on the media and the public discourse that we're having, given that you've been, you know, tracking it, mm. you've got some great resources on your website, australianpolitics.com. And um, what I'm interested in, given that I only have a smaller range of time to refer to, I, I want to grab your knowledge too, is that even on 
during my lifetime, when I was, you know, very absorbed in newspapers and politics in high school, when nearly all of my friends were not, I noticed that there was at least some level of agreement on the set of facts that we were arguing mm. from and there seemed to be less a contestation of the facts and more a contestation of how to solve the problem or you know deal with the f- set of facts is is that a real change in your oh, mind I, I think that that's undoubtedly true um i mean the internet has done that uh without without a shadow of a doubt um the extent to which that's the real problem look i, I just don't know but but there's no question that is the case. Um, I This started out as a joke, but it's sort of become my Sammy of policy. Don't read a newspaper unless it's at least 30 years old. <laughs> because if you just do that, you go back and you read the old newspapers and you realise how much of it, well, no, that's not quite what happened. That's not mm-hmm. how it worked out. That prediction didn't come true. Um, and if we get too lost amongst that sort of stuff, and in a week like this, after an election, there's an awful lot of it, and it helps to just sort of walk away from it a little bit. I mean, if you think back to the election campaign, this is the classic instance of where the media just focus on the things that that matter but which aren't the real story. So we had Kuyong and Higgins. Yes. And, and I met people who believed that Kuyong and Higgins were going to fall, that Flinders was going to fall. Whereas, you know, it's obvious that the only one that was ever realistically going to fall was Warringah because that was mm. just, that was one out of the box, you know. And even Karen Phelps has lost, you know. She's a seven-month MP. That's her footnote in the history books. Um, and there's all this focus on things that I used to think, well, why aren't you out not doing a story on Kuyong, but why aren't you doing a story on Chisholm and Deacon and Aston and Latrobe? Yeah. That's, if it's going to swing anyway, that's where it'll swing. Um, you know, but maybe all these media people, you know, are in fact inner city latte sitting, latte, <laughs> latte sipping types. <laughs> it is possible. I mean, you were saying that you're. <clears throat> what, what is the seat that you were in? I'm in Chisholm. Chisholm. Well, there you go. I'm in Chisholm. And as they were After saying, years of living in safe seats, I'm, I'm, I'm now in a marginal. <laughs> Your vote does count. Literally. Yeah. Well, I've just checked, and there are 600 votes in it at the moment, and obviously in favour of Gladys Liu, the right. Liberal candidate. Uh, it will be hard to topple that. Yeah. At this stage. that she, she, She's got it, I reckon. Well, because now we're moving into postal votes. And they're breaking 60% for the for her, I believe. Mm, mm. And there was also some interesting discussion or and a lot of outrage on Twitter, as usual, about some of the campaign tactics on the day, particularly the mm. sign in Mandarin that said the correct way to vote mm. is to preference one Liberal mm. and then number all the rest of the boxes yeah. that was in AEC colours and sitting right next to an official AEC sign. Yes. Look, those dirty tricks are tried by all and sundry from time to time. It's pretty bold. It, it, is, it is bold. <laughs> in an electorate that has 20% Mandarin speakers. That's true. But it also means you have to believe that the average Chinese voter is stupid and will fall for this. And I don't think that's any more likely than you or I for it. Mm. Well, I think from my understanding, they're particularly politically astute mm. and very engaged. Mm. Yeah. 
And most likely conservative voters. Yes, and would already <laughs> possibly vote Liberal, yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, I, I come from Kurangamite, so on the I've been following that campaign closely and a lot of uh, media was saying, oh, look at all the money being thrown at Kurangamite. Mm. Oh, how lucky those Kurangamite people are. Well, I was kind of annoyed at that because it was a very easy and simplistic way of talking mm. about something that was actually a lot more complex and yeah. important it was billions and it didn't work yes and also like the liberal party proposed around three billion dollars roughly it could have been more than that in the end like there were so many sporting clubs getting half a million dollars each mm. i couldn't count them all but there was also two billion dollars of it was a proposed fast rail between Geelong and Melbourne mm. that did not have state government support at all, that yes. hadn't even had a feasibility study delivered. And we had, at the beginning of the campaign, Sarah Henderson had signs out saying, fast rail to Melbourne delivered <laughs> already. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so a lot of the electorate were saying, well, that's two-thirds of the promises you've given us is a pipe dream potentially that will be stalled by mm. the Victorian government anyway. So I guess in terms of pork barrelling and yes. buying electorates, it didn't really seem it, to be very well no, thought through. It, it'll work to some extent because people expect that, you know, things are going to be delivered. But um, I think really we shouldn't underestimate the electorate. Mm. But they, they, they are able to see through these things. Um, and we shouldn't overestimate it ourselves because, you know, the real reason uh, Sarah Henderson has lost is that the redistribution put some of the suburbs of Geelong into Kerangamite and that's killed her. You know, it's it's a structural thing as much as anything mm. else. Yeah. Because everyone would agree that she's been quite a good member. You know, I'm sure she's well respected and well regarded down there. Um, but that counts for nothing if... You know, if the boundaries are against you and, you know, and the government is on the nose. Mm. I think that one of the really important things is that electorates can smell when something isn't right or that it's not delivering on something that they want and they can tell when a politician is being genuine and when they're not. And a lot of people have said this election result is the wrong result, that mm. Labor has lost the unlosable election and that, you know, we should get rid of Queensland and, you know, they've yes. all chosen the wrong person. Oh, yes. It Look, seems like a problematic thing to say to suggest that the Australians got it wrong mm. when we're oh, in a de democracy. Look, I agree entirely within 12 hours of this result i'd already had one argument with someone i've known for many many years who wouldn't accept any criticism of the labor party it was all you know a conspiracy by murdoch or you know palmer or whoever mm. um and uh, you know it was all sort of scare campaigns and and all the rest and it's very difficult to have a sensible political discussion with people thinking like this so I, I i have no truck with all this stuff about you know i mean let's by all means let's joke about uh, you know getting rid of queensland and so on but it, but it's yeah, nonsense it the, is. The, the, yeah. the, the challenge for the party is how do you deal with this, mm. you know? You have to win seats in New South Wales and Victoria because that's where most of them are, but you can't win if you're not doing well in Queensland. And you have to say, well, all right, Anastasia Palaszczuk has done it. We've got to work out how to do it, you know? Mm. Um, and I, 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 haven't, I can't abide the people who say that type of thing because, you know, occasionally the people will elect the other side and you can't argue that 
they were very sensible and intelligent and <laughs> forward-thinking then and now they're all stupid. Yes. Um, this is a sort of an eight-year-old's reaction to a setback. Yeah, it's and a I, tantrum. We can, it, is, it is a tantrum. Yeah. yeah. We are running out of time, so I just want to finally end on Bob Hawke because he passed away right at the end of the campaign and, of course, um, we did stop and have a bit of reflection, but I wanted to... Well, we know why. He wasn't going to stick around no. to see this. Uh, well, it might have killed him if he did stick around because it's pretty, yeah, shocking and gutting for some people who were particularly passionate about the environment and climate change. Bob Hawke is known for many things, particularly his economic reforms with Paul Keating, but he also has an environmental legacy. Absolutely. From the Franklin Dam through to the Daintree, through to Mm. sand mining. Um, Yeah, quite a good record. Do you think that he, at the when he passed on and we had this kind of moment of reflection, to me it seemed like it presented a very stark contrast to you know, his type of leadership to the type of leadership we have right now. What is your summation, given that you've seen both governments? Oh, well, look, I think that's right. Um, I regard Bob Hawke as one of those people who looks better and better with every passing day. Um, because... If you lived through the 80s, you can't deny that many Labor supporters and many Labor Party members were very hostile to Hawke. You know, he was accused of being, you know, too close to what we once would have called the big end of town, but perhaps that phrase died the other day. Um, and uh, and Hawke's policies were, were resisted. Um, I, I know people who still won't sort of uh, be too upset about Hawke departing because they didn't like what he did. That, that you, you, you can't underestimate that. Um, as Bill Clinton used to say about Harry Truman and his health reforms, he said, my family... No, I won't try and do the accent, <laughs> but he said, you know, my family supported him when he was actually president. Um, and, you know, there are some people who supported Hawke when he was actually prime minister... There are people who support him now, but they weren't necessarily there at the time. Mm. Um, But in other respects, he's the exemplar of how to be a prime minister. He managed a cabinet. Um, If if you read Gareth Evans' books, for example, he talks at some length about this, at at the way the cabinet operated and the way decisions were made. Uh, And it's very impressive because that's how our system should work. It's meant to work, yeah. Um, And... uh, uh, and, you know, and in that respect, he was more than just a chairman of the board. He was a, a prime minister who really knew how to do it. Plus, he was surrounded by a very talented team, you know, yeah. one, of, one of the most talented mm. ever. Um, We're going to have to finish one of the it greats, there. for sure. Yeah. Malcolm, it's been such a pleasure for me to really get into some detail with you about federal politics and pick your brain, which is uh, very knowledgeable and passionate as well. And um, I hope that people can follow you on Twitter at mfarnsworth and visit your websites, one of which is australianpolitics.com, and also support those websites because they do need crowdfunding to keep them going. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.